My name is Shane, so I'm a software engineer. Uh, the place I work, it's, it's not very spiritual. It's very much about engineering and science. When I began this journey, I, I was very much a skeptic. I didn't trust preachers. Uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't buy into uh, what I saw a Christian was on TV. I, I didn't think that the Bible was true. I always left a, a, maybe a hair of, of possibility. But at the time, when I was younger, it was something I was, I, was, I was into other things. I was going to college, I was doing science, I was doing a career, and, and I felt like it was a, a waste of time to kind of figure this stuff out. So I'd say fast forward about 10 years or so, my daughter started asking questions about God. And I didn't want to immediately dismiss it. Um, I didn't think that was a fair thing to do as a, a person who trusted science. I wanted to kind of figure out and explain exactly why it wasn't right or why, why it couldn't be possible. So my wife started taking my daughter to, to church uh, to, to teach her more about what she was asking. And, and I, I could see in both of them that they were getting a lot out of it. Like they were, they were changing. They weren't a different person, but they were, they were becoming a little bit more fuller in a sense. That part didn't bother me at all. That was very good to see. But, but I wanted to make sure that, that everything else that came along with it was, was actually true. So I, I, I started going to church with them. So I came almost researching it in a way. I did a lot of reading. The more I learned, the more it began to snowball into a, a uh, almost a wealth of evidence uh, in support of it. And for me, it was, it was the transition from thinking there was more evidence against the Bible to a transition thinking that there are some very real core truths in here. I can't dismiss what I'm finding in here and, and if it's true then I've got to walk down this path and see where it leads. I didn't have all the answers but I had enough to know that, that it was a direction I wanted to head in. It was something where I felt comfortable walking in that path and, and, and heading, heading down that line toward Jesus and that's when I decided to be baptized and it wasn't that I was baptized and everything was was okay I, I can stop looking for this stuff now or I can stop you know uh, wondering what this part of the Bible means or how does it reconcile to the real world and what they're saying and stuff but for every question that I answer uh, there's deeper questions that you keep going into that keep coming up it's it's kind of almost a learning journey and, and I'm starting to, to feel the more spiritual aspect of, of, of walking on the path. It's, it's definitely a, a lifelong thing. Thank God he's a God for doubters and skeptics. Amen. I love that. Thank God he's a God for doubters and skeptics. And I know as a doubter and a skeptic, I know I'm grateful that God is for the rest of us. Uh, we're in this series, God for the rest of us, have been for the past several weeks. I just feel like it's just been an amazing series. We've been reminding ourselves that despite what the religious folks may tell you, God is for the addict and for the unloved and for the forgotten and for the dysfunctional. And today, God is for the doubters and the skeptics. Before I jump into it, I just want to say a word to you as a church. I want to thank you so much 
uh, for the outpouring this week. It's been a hard week for our community, hard for a lot of us, but I'm really grateful. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of you stepped up this week to volunteer here at the church so we could keep our doors open practically 24 hours a day for the community to come. And I'm really grateful for that. I know a lot of you took off work uh, so we could do that, and I really appreciate that. Um, I really believe, I think God's been close to us in this time. God's been close to the grieving families and the grieving sheriff's office and the grieving uh, firefighter community and just all the grief throughout the county. I think God's been close to the church, allowing us to really serve. And so there's still a lot of grief and a lot of questions, but there's a lot to praise God for this week. But I want to thank you for being a part of that. Uh, today, we're going to talk about this, um, this doubting and skeptic thing, which, which I think sometimes is a taboo topic in the church. Sometimes we worry we're not allowed to talk about it in the church. But I think we have to talk about it, because for so many of us, doubt is a part of our real experience. Uh, before I jump in, I'm going to plug two books here. I don't always do this, but if you're a doubter and a skeptic, you're probably the kind of person who doesn't mind reading. So I'm going to plug two books, two books that have really influenced this message. Uh, one is called Benefit of the Doubt. Benefit of the Doubt. It's by Greg Boyd. It's super. Um, the other is called No Doubt, not N-O Doubt, but K-N-O-W Doubt, as in Get to Know Doubt. It's by John Ortberg. Both fantastic books. Uh, we have a little info sheet on them at the resource table, so you can grab it and go buy it on Amazon or something if you want to learn more about the topics we're discussing today. Doubt is not a complicated thing. Uh, we all know doubt. Doubt is just uncertainty about what's true. It's uncertainty about what you believe. Uh, We experience doubt in all kinds of things, you know, uh, doubt about what to do with our lives, doubt about financial choices and career choices and relationship choices. We're uncertain about what we should do. I think, I, I know different people interact with their doubt so very differently. Some people seem to never experience doubt. They always know exactly what they should do. It might be the wrong thing, but they're certain of it either way, right? I, I know religious people who are like this. They have never questioned what they were taught as a kid in their entire life. They're absolutely certain it's 100% accurate. I know irreligious people who are like this. I know atheists who are absolutely certain they've got it all figured out. They've got no questions left. They know exactly what it is. I know these people. I don't understand these people, but I know these people because that's not me at all. I've got questions everywhere. So for the rest of us, those of us who have uncertainty, what do we do with it? Well, sometimes we hide it, right? Have you ever done that? Hide your doubts, especially maybe in church. You feel like you need to hide your doubt and pretend like you're more certain than you really are. Sometimes we hide our doubts from our kids or our loved ones because we don't want them to know just how nervous and concerned and uncertain we are about some decision that we're facing in life. Sometimes we give up on hiding it and we agonize over our doubt. Maybe it's religious doubt. I've been there. I have lost countless nights of sleep as I feel like the foundations of my faith are just being worn away and I'm just praying to God that there will be something solid to stand on left as it feels like my whole world is being shaken. Maybe you're agonized over doubt. Maybe you're agonized over doubt, you know, should I marry this person or should we have kids or what should we do here? And you can be agonized over the uncertainty. Some people kind of ignore it. You know, they just, kind of, uh, they just kind of decide it doesn't matter. They become indifferent to these questions. Well, if you can't know, you can't know. I guess I'll just focus on my everyday. 
Some people revel in it. They get so excited about poking holes in other people's confidence. You know, these people, there's nothing they more like more is to find somebody who's certain about something and poke holes in it until they are uncertain too. They want everybody to be uncertain. You know these people. So we're all over the place on doubt. What's interesting though is the church has a rather stable reputation when it comes to doubt. The church's reputation when it comes to doubt is that the church is anti-doubt. The church has a reputation as a being a place where questions are unwanted, uncertainty is unwelcome, where skepticism is scorned. That's the reputation of the church. But in this series, our first focus is not how do we deal with doubt, although we'll get to that. Our first focus is not how should the church deal with doubt, although we'll get to that. Our first focus is much simpler. What does God think about doubt? And more particularly, what does God think about doubters? Or, to be fair, how a doubter would ask that question is, if there even is a God, if the God of the Bible happens to be true, how might that God think about doubters? I've asked this question a lot in my life. And I love this question. I'm crazy about this question. The reason I like this question so much is because the Bible is crazy clear about the answer. How does God feel about people who are uncertain about their faith? About people who are skeptical of what they're being told? The Bible is crystal clear about it. I'll tell you a story. I love this story. Jesus and his disciples, they've been up on a mountain. They've had this great religious experience. And they're going back down. And the disciples who stayed at the bottom of the mountain are having a problem. A man has come to them whose son is diseased and demon-possessed. He has seizures. And the disciples have been trying to heal the boy. And they've failed. And the man turns to Jesus and he says... If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I love that question. That's the question of someone who is uncertain. And Jesus responds, If you can, I can walk on water. I can calm the storms. I I cast out three demons before breakfast. What do you mean, if you can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. I'm not sure what I would have done if I was that father right then. Maybe I would have walked away sad. No, I know what I would have done. I would have lied. That's what I would have done. I would have said, I absolutely believe, 100%. I have no uncertainty at all, totally, right here, I believe. Go ahead and heal him. But... I don't know, maybe it was hard to lie to Jesus. I don't know what, maybe so, I don't know. Because that's not what this father does. Here's what he does. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Oh, I love that. And what will Jesus do? What what would Jesus do with that little mustard seed of confidence surrounded by an ocean of uncertainty? Jesus heals the boy. 
Jesus honors him. Jesus accepts that. Everything is possible for those who believe. And that apparently was enough belief for Jesus to act in that boy's life. There's another story that may be even, maybe even more amazing. It's about John the Baptist. Now, some of you know the Bible stories, and you know who John the Baptist is. Some of your guests here, maybe you've never heard this story. You don't know. John the Baptist was the man. He was Jesus' cousin. He was the first one to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. As a baby in his mother's womb, he knew that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, the one that God would send. He was a prophet who prepared the way for Jesus. He baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens open and a dove descend. He heard the voice of God say, This is my beloved Son. If anybody had certain faith, it was the prophet John the Baptist. Until his life faced a crisis. Some of you know that story. Some of you could tell the story of your unshakable faith until you found out your faith was not unshakable, it just hadn't yet been shaken. And there's a difference. And then you couldn't have children. Or your child died. Or your marriage was destroyed. Or a relationship ended. Or you were deceived and God let you down. And all of a sudden you were no longer certain. John the Baptist, the great confident prophet of Jesus Christ, was in prison. And soon to be killed. And no rescue was coming And he began to doubt. And he sent a message to Jesus. He said to Jesus, or rather his messengers said, Are you the one who is to come? Were we right about you after all? All that stuff I said, was that true about you? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus sends a message back. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Give him the evidence he needs for the confidence he desires to trust in me until the end. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed. When Jesus meets uncertain faith he honors it and loves it and enlivens it and strengthens it again and again we could talk about thomas we call him doubting thomas everybody else saw jesus alive and they tell thomas jesus is alive and thomas says i won't believe it not till i see the hands and touch his side what would jesus do how would jesus respond to such a doubting uncertain disciple abandon him reject him despise him not jesus he loves him and he shows him and he gives him back his faith 
This is it, folks. Every time in Scripture that someone comes to God or comes to Jesus with uncertain, doubt-filled, wavering hope, God emboldens them and meets them and affirms them and alivens them. It's every single time. So how could it be? If the Bible is so consistent that God honors the doubting and loves the doubting and respects the questioner, how could it be that we as a church have gotten a reputation for rejecting the skeptic and being allergic to doubt? I think it's because God understands faith and we have gotten quite confused. You see, it turns out that as the Bible articulates what it means to have faith, the Bible is remarkably clear and consistent that faith is not the same as certainty. Faith is not the same as intellectual certainty. Knowing everything and not having any uncertainty at all. Faith just isn't the same. It's clear from the word itself, the Greek word pistis, gets translated believe, faith, trust, faithfulness. Well, the word at its root just simply isn't about intellectual certainty. It's about trusting. It's about following. It's about being faithful and loyal to and, and more than just the word, the Bible goes to great pains to make it clear that faith and certainty are not the same thing. There's this great verse in James where it's talking about certainty. It says, you believe that there is one God. You're certain there's God. Well, super. The demons are certain about that too. The demons believe that and they tremble. Faith is not certainty. Faith is about loyalty. Hear that again. Faith is not about certainty. It's about loyalty. We could say it this way. Faith is not about certainty. It's about trust. Faith is not knowing without any doubt or question that you've got all the facts lined up. Faith is about deciding to trust and be guided by Christ even though you're pretty sure you don't have all the facts lined up. I have an illustration. Maybe this illustration will be helpful to you. Have you ever, um, maybe for a project or something, you've found yourself following a set of instructions, right? So maybe it's GPS instructions or instructions to somewhere. Or maybe you're putting together some furniture from Ikea or something like that. You've done, you're following the instructions. Well, if you're like me, a, a skeptic and a doubter, and you're following a set of instructions, then about halfway through the set of instructions, you have this moment. It goes something like this. Now, listen, I know those Swedes. They're clever people, you know. I mean, always trust a Swede. That's what they say. But I'm just pretty sure that the little Ikea man that says the next step is this is wrong. I'm pretty sure the next step is to nail a few things over here, glue that over there. I just, I just don't know. I'm no longer certain in the reliability of those brilliant Swedes who design all that furniture for Ikea. That question, that uncertainty, is doubt. What I do next is about faith. I either, with my uncertainty, still do what the little man tells me on the Ikea instructions. 
or because of my uncertainty, decide to build the furniture my own way. I have about a 50-50 track record on which I choose to do. I will testify when I choose to obey the little Swedish stick figures, I build better furniture uh, than when I choose to build it my own way. But, but I tell that illustration not to comment on my furniture building ability or the instructions of Swedes, but to comment on the clear distinction between what it means to have faith and what it means to be certain. Certain is about your cognitive choices. Faith is about your life. You can be uncertain and still trust. And this myth, this myth that faith and certainty are the same thing, it's doing serious damage in our church. We need to be attentive to this. The myth that what it means to be faith, it means to have faith, is to be totally certain about every point of doctrine, about everything we believe. It's doing real damage to the church. Because if it's true, now it's not, but if it were true that faith and certainty were the same thing, well then we would need to pretend like none of us have any questions, and none of us are confused, and none of us worry, and none of us wonder. If it were true that faith and certainty were the same thing, they're not. But if it were true, well then how can you learn? How can we grow deeper in our knowledge of God and Scripture? Because what it means to learn is to set aside an old idea and embrace a new, fuller, richer, more developed idea. And that moment of setting aside and embracing is always a moment of uncertainty. If it were true that faith was the same as certainty, we might as well put a sign on the front door, no scientists allowed, no engineers allowed, no college students allowed, no adolescents of any kind, because for whole swaths of our population, all we know how to do is to ask questions, to embrace uncertainty, to delve deep by, by dismantling what we've been given and rebuilding it for ourselves. But if faith equals certainty, then all of that is a rejection of faith. If faith equals certainty, then somewhere in the Bible you would find blessed are the gullible and the naive, for they never ask any hard questions. If faith were certainty, then you would find in Scripture a consistent refrain that criticizes the questioner and scorns the skeptic and celebrates the certain and those who never ask. But instead we find just the opposite. I wish I had time to introduce you to all the texts that seem to invite examination. But let me just hit a couple. We could look, we won't look there right now, but we could look at the beginning of Luke and Acts. The beginning of Luke and Acts make it clear that the guy who wrote those, probably Luke, but we're not sure. We're talking about being skeptical here, so let's not say more than we can. Okay, but the guy who wrote those books makes it clear that he was a skeptic. He says, I interviewed people, I checked their statements, I visited the, I looked, read the eyewitness testimonies, and then I went and visited the places to make sure things checked out. He says, Jesus came with proofs. Why would you mention the proofs if it weren't that you wanted people to test it? Paul, he writes a letter to a church in Corinth, and he writes this letter in the 15th chapter. He says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. There it is. 
the center of our faith. And if Paul had wanted to say to us, there it is, either believe it or don't, either be certain or be a pagan, those are your options. If you have any doubt, you're kind of out. If he'd wanted to say that, he would have stopped right there. But he doesn't. This is what he says next. He says, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all appeared to me also as one untimely born. Why would you mention the 500 and make sure we know they're still alive, except if you wanted to say, listen, I get it. Some of you might be skeptical. I'm saying that a dude was dead and is now alive. Only a great fool wouldn't be skeptical of a claim like that. But there's evidence, he says. Check it out. They're still alive. Go talk to the eyewitnesses. Let them tell you how their lives have been changed. Let them tell you what they've seen God done. There isn't certainty, just to be clear. That's not what he's offering. But there is confidence, confidence enough to trust. Listen to the way Paul says it one time. I love this. This is at the end of the book of Acts. Paul's on trial. He's on trial before two people, a Jewish king and a Roman official. The king's named Agrippa. The official's name is Festus. And he's been talking about Jesus and all that Jesus has done and how Jesus died and he arose from the dead and the spread of the church and the miracles he's seen. And Festus decides he's crazy. Again, that's not an unreasonable conclusion for a man who goes talking around about people rising from the dead. Paul answers him this way. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. you got to notice something. Buried in that statement is one of the most profound claims about the nature of the Christian faith. Unlike every other world religion, our central claims, we say, were public historical events. Not some guru that got enlightened, not some prophet that had a meeting with an angel, but public events that either happened or they didn't. And from the very beginning, Christians have invited the skeptic to be part of the party to say, come with your questions, come with your uncertainty. Certainty is not required. In fact, certainty isn't even an option. But what is an option is to discover that the evidence is profound and there is a foundation for your faith that could let you begin to trust. That's what faith is. Not certainty, but to trust. And if this is the case, if this is true, then our doubt is not a threat to our faith. Instead, faithful doubt brought before God, given to Him as we quest together for answers to our questions, is instead an exercise for faith. It's an, it's an action of faith to say, God, I don't know, I'm not sure, but here are my questions, God. What can you do for me? 
just like the Father did and John the Baptist did. And every time they were met with a God who was for the doubter and the skeptic. Now, I don't want to be naive here. I know there are downsides to doubt. I know there are dangers to doubt. The downside to doubt in the realm of faith is the same as the downside to doubt in every other realm. Uncertainty is agonizing. Uncertainty, should I go out on a second date or not? Uncertainty, should I take that new job and uproot my family or not? Uncertainty, should we have children or not? Should we do the surgery or not? Uncertainty is agonizing. And uncertainty in the realm of faith is no different. God is with you in the agony, but the agony is still there. But the danger of doubt is not the agony. The agony alone can actually lead you to greater faith as you stay with God through that process. The danger of the doubt, I think, comes in three forms. They're pretty simple, but they're also pretty common. One of the dangers of doubt is that it can lead us to become cynics. The cynic says, without certainty, I choose nothing. Until you can prove it to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm not buying it. I'm not going to move toward it. This is often what happens when someone is raised in a certainty version of faith and that certainty is shattered. They flip to cynicism. If you can't give me certainty, I'll take nothing. The problem with the posture of the cynic is that it's a logically impossible way to go through life. Because the posture of the cynic not only cuts off any faith, it cuts off every choice you'll ever make in life. You can't be certain about anything. You can't be certain the job's going to work out. You can't be certain your marriage will work out. You can't be certain your kids will be healthy. You can't be certain you'll be healthy. So to say that because certainty isn't an option, I'm just going to kind of check out of the whole faith conversation. Well, that's... It's a foolish choice because certainty is never an option. Thank God, certainty isn't what he asks for either. The second danger of doubt is sometimes doubt can be a mask for rebellion. Now, I want to be cautious here. Some of you are here with doubts that are genuine intellectual doubts. It is the uncertainty itself that is your agony. And so if I'm not talking about you, then I'm not talking about you. But sometimes, this has been the case in my life many times, when I experience doubt, what's really happening is that I know in my life I'm living in rebellion against God. And it'd be a lot easier for me if God just didn't exist. Or the Christian faith was all just a sham. Because then there wouldn't be any pressure on me to change my life. And sometimes when you're stuck in doubt, I would just invite you to have a serious conversation with God. Is it really doubt? It might be. Or is it really rebellion? And you're just pretending that the issue is doubt. Because that happens too. The last way doubt can be a danger is what I would call the pride of skepticism. There are some people who are so proud that they've never been taken for a fool. No one ever got you over. You never bought a used car without getting it inspected. You know, you never voted for some liar. You never, never got taken in. 
And so you've just decided that because of your pride, the stance you're going to take is you're never going to take a risk. You're never going to trust. You're never going to move to a posture of giving your confidence over unless you can see everything there is to see, unless you've asked every question. But you can't ask every question. There are too many questions. And that prideful skepticism will keep you always at arm's length from the life God's inviting you to. So there are dangers to doubt. And if you give in to those dangers, to cynicism or rebellion or skepticism, doubt can become an obstacle between you and living a life trusting God. But it doesn't have to be. If you let yourself if you decide to get serious about your doubt, to embrace your questions, and with those questions, entrust even those questions to God. Doubt, instead of the obstacle to your faith, can be the engine to your faith. I want to get super practical for a second, and I want to just tell you some things you could begin to do that would actually let that happen in your life. The one thing I would, first thing I would say is, accept the invitation to examination. We looked at those scriptures and there are dozens more that make it clear that God wants you to put the reality of the witness of scripture to the test. If I could suggest to you, I would start in two places. I would start with, did Jesus rise from the dead? And can I trust the scriptures? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And is Scripture reliable? Don't start with, is the virgin birth true or was it copied from Egyptian mythology? Don't start with creation. Don't start with the Red Sea. Start at the heart of the matter. Because if Jesus rose from the dead and you trust your life to that, what you decide about the Red Sea doesn't matter. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what you decide about the Red Sea doesn't matter. So start with the heart of the matter. Start where all the marbles are on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the reliability of Scripture. If that's something you want to do, I'll I'll point out a couple resources. There are hundreds of great resources. Stop me in the hall someday. I could rattle off a list of books mile long. But I'll start with just two. One is by a man named Lee Strobel and it's called The Case for Christ. It's simple. It's clear. He's just asking hard. He's bringing his questions and seeing where God takes them. The Case for Christ. The other book, it's, it's more recent. I probably like it a tiny bit better, but I like both of these a lot or I wouldn't mention them. The other book is called Reason for God. And it's by Tim Keller. He's a preacher in New York City. Reason for God. Except, I, I just say, listen, in my life, there have been several times, five or six times, when... It has felt like all the, all the inner workings of my faith just like were crumbling around me. And every time I've gone back to these two questions, re-examined the evidence, re-asked the questions. We've got some sermon series where I've talked more carefully and others have talked about the evidence there. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is Scripture reliable? That's the place to start your examination. The second thing, real practically, that we want to do 
is as a church, as a people, let's help each other make the distinction between trust and certainty. Let's just remember that when the Bible talks about our belief, our faith, it isn't talking about certainty. It's talking about loyalty, entrustedness. Jesus doesn't ever say, be certain about everything I said. He says, trust me, follow me. And there's a difference. Let's wrestle with the mystery. Let's be a place that loves the questions and accepts the skeptic. This is how I finally learned how to pray again. I used to think that the only way I could pray was if I was certain of the outcome. But that isn't what Scripture asks us. It asks us to be certain about who we're trusting with the outcome. And that makes all the difference to your prayers. Learn, speaking of prayer, learn the doubter's prayer. Learn to pray, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I love that prayer. My favorite thing about that prayer is I know how Jesus answers that prayer. Because I saw him do it in Scripture. Jesus honors that prayer. I would close with, um, with an image, uh, an illustration or whatever that may be useful to you. An illustration about trust even when you're uncertain. I don't very often use illustrations from my life where I am kind of the good guy of the story. In most of my life, I'm the fool, and so when I tell stories about my life, that comes out. But in this one story, I happen to do something right, but I hope the story will still be meaningful to you. I was hiking with some friends on the edge of the Cherokee National Forest down in Tennessee, and uh, we had, as often happened, we had overestimated how far we could go that day. And we had been up hiking on a ridge line as it wiggled around through the forest. And um, we were heading back and had about four miles back of relatively rough terrain. And it was getting dark fast and we hadn't packed flashlights. We were kind of foolish and we were, we were getting a little nervous about things. I got it in my head that I had been paying attention to the lay of the land well enough and where different mountains were and things like that that the ridge where we were was just up the hill from where we'd parked. I got in my head that if we left the trail and just went taken on right straight down the hill, we would land at the parking lot where we'd been. And so I convinced my friends that we were going to do this, and so sure enough, we took off down the hill toward that parking lot. Years later, I was talking with this group of people about that experience, and I found out something about that story that I didn't know at the time. We'd been walking down the hill for a little ways. It was a very, very steep hill, covered in rhododendron, which is really, really hard to hike through because you can't cut it or push it out of the way. You've got to wiggle around it. And, and I had gotten a little bit ahead of the group, kind of in my eagerness to get down and find where we were going. And... Um, what I didn't know is that behind me, the rest of the group was kind of together. And they had paused. And they had said, do any of you think that Magnus knows where he's going? <laughs> and there was universal uh, agreement that Magnus did not know where he was going. 
And there was universal frustration because all that journey down the hill, we would have just had to turn back and scramble back up and then walk the trail home the whole length now in the dark. And according to my friends, it was that moment as they were taking that vote that I called out, I can see the road. The cars are right here. Now, I'm not right very often, so don't learn from this story. Follow Ethan's directions. You'll get to the right place. That is not the moral of this story. The moral of this story is that my friend's uncertainty about my reliability had no bearing on whether or not they made it to the car. What matters is that even with their uncertainty, they trusted me. Here's the thing, folks. Jesus Christ is a ton more reliable than I am. God's word is a ton more reliable, a guide back to where you want to be than I am. I get your uncertainty. I promise you, tell me what your uncertainty is about. I can match it, uncertainty for uncertainty. I get your questions. I promise I can match you question for question. But here's what I know. When I have been uncertain when I have been lost in my questions and I have trusted God with my uncertainty and my questions, God has been a faithful guide every single time. That'd be my invitation to you. Don't pretend you're certain if you're not. God will know the difference. Don't act like you don't have questions. We love your questions here. But don't wait till you're certain to give your loyalty to God because... That wait will never end. Instead, in the context of trusting your life to God, begin to work through your questions. Don't be afraid. God can handle your uncertainty. And from your doubts can grow a faith that is confident even when the questions come. Because God is not just for the certain. God is for the rest of us. Let's pray. Oh God, give us faith. When we wonder and are uncertain, teach us to trust You with our uncertainty. And God, as we walk with you more and more, we ask not for certainty, for it's not what you have for us or what you want for us. We ask God for faith, the confidence to trust you even in our questions. We ask this in the name of the faithful one, Jesus Christ. Amen.